Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ray Suarez is the host of Inside Story on Al Jazeera America. Before that, he was a longtime correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, and he hosted NPR's Talk of the Nation for a good chunk of the 90s. You know, when you're in broadcast news, you get a certain reputation around town. And there was one perk of that reputation that Ray Suarez didn't see coming. I was involved in a local YMCA that had a gang diversion program. And so I did a workshop with a big bunch of guys who were trying to get out of gangs. And I had to go home before going to work. And the guy says, oh, you know, we have the van. I'll drop you at your house. So I get in with a bunch of gang boys into this van. And we're riding along. And one of them, from the Latin Kings, says, oh, hey, there's your house. So, uh, you know, what's the play there? How do you know that's my house? But I was dying to know. So I said, oh, do all the brothers know that I live there? He says, oh, yeah. He says, why do you think your garage was never tagged? Ray Suarez, VIP status. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Ray Suarez talks about his experiences as a somewhat reluctant role model. And he tells me what it was like to be the first Latino hire in workplace after workplace. Over and over again, it kind of got boring. At some point you thought, couldn't I be the second somewhere? That would be kind of neat. But you are treated kind of like um, a unicorn who unfortunately has to be fed. Then later, Dan Deacon explains how he moved from being a dance DJ hidden behind a laptop at gigs to creating these kind of dance party experiences where the audience is at the center of everything. I remember the first time I made a circle, like a clearing in the audience, and then I noticed like for the first time that night, the entire room wasn't just staring towards the direction of the stage. And the whole focus of the room changed, and other people in the room became the performers, and it just... I don't know, it really resonated with me, and I became obsessed with it. And we'll have a stand-up set from the hilarious Phoebe Robinson, all coming up on a bullseye taped in front of a live audience at NPR's Studio One in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And we're going to start this week's show with some stand-up comedy. Phoebe Robinson is the creator of the website Blaria, a.k.a. Black Daria, and she has a new podcast launching soon, a collaboration with Jessica Williams from The Daily Show. You've seen her perform on Late Night with Seth Meyers and Totally Biased. Here she is opening our D.C. live show, Phoebe Robinson. Hi, how are you guys doing? I am so happy to be in D.C. where the, the crosswalk gives you, what, 70 seconds? That's a really... That's too much time. Um, it's like, how bad do you really want to cross the street at that point? Um, but I, I am happy to, to be here and also be back in the States. I was, uh, was recently, I was just in Budapest, uh, which is very gorgeous. I was there for um, work slash vacation because um, I had recently broken up with my boyfriend. Um, and uh, it, I had an amazing time there. It was like the best trip. I felt like... Julia Roberts and Eat, Pray, Love, you know? I just felt like a rich white lady who has problems for no reason. Like, it was so good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I was there, and I broke up with my boyfriend of four years, and uh, he's a white guy, and um, I, um, I still miss him sometimes. It was only three months ago, so it's still fresh. And sometimes I miss him. Um, the one thing I don't miss is making out with him. Um, <laughs> hear me out. Um, because whenever we get finished making out, my, all my like black lady makeup would be like all over his face. <laughs> so he just like ended up looking like a coal miner, you know? <laughs> like he just looked like Daniel Day-Lewis and there will be blood. Like it was just... I always kept saying, I drink your milkshake. And I'm like, can you stop? That's too much. That is too much. But yeah, I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, which is great. I love Brooklyn. 
Um, usually I get to applaud, so that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> you guys totally negged me, and that makes me like you more, so it worked. <laughs> it worked, DC, it worked. Um, but I love living in Brooklyn. My favorite thing about living there is getting catcalled, which I know sounds kind of weird. Um, because everyone's like, no, uh, catcalling's bad. I want to feel like a lady, but it's, I love it because I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and like the. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Cleveland is my hometown, but New York, like Brooklyn, got nothing. And then Cleveland was just like, fireworks! Like, okay, um, who, who all is from, Cle why are there so many Cleveland people here? What happened? But yeah, so I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, the guys there are just like really lazy, you know? They'll just call out whatever I'm wearing to get my attention. Um, they'll be like, yo, yo, what up, earrings? How's it going, tennis shoes? You know, like just very... <laughs> basic things. Um, but the guys from Brooklyn like to guess my birthplace, you know? So they'd be like, yo, yo, Jamaica, Jamaica. Hey, <laughs> hey, Tanzania. <laughs> oh, Tanzania don't want to talk. Tanzania sassy, Tanzania sassy. <laughs> like, I keep getting the third world countries thrown my way, uh, which kind of makes sense because I'm sort of skinny. Um, <laughs> And I'm always walking around with the boom boxes playing the Lion King soundtrack, so. <laughs> it's on me, it is on me, you guys. Um, but speaking of Cleveland, I'm excited to go back home. I, uh, I'm, I'm going home for the holidays, which is great. And, uh, cause I have a niece. She turned one recently, which is awesome. She's very, very adorable. Um, She's a hybrid. She's half black, half white. Um, she's very, very, she's so adorable. I love her so much. Um, so she's one, and the, uh, the, the color has not come in yet. Um, she's still very pale, um, which is fine. I'm going to love her no matter what. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but I do need her to get darker because I don't want her to have a better life than me. So uh, let's go. <laughs> I kid, though, I kid, because biracial people are the future, right? Like, everyone's mixing together. Like, that's what America's going to be, like, 50 years from now. It's going to be awesome. She's going to have a great life, you know? Like, when she gets older, she'll be able to do fun math, you know? So it'll be like, hey, what are you? And she'll be like, oh, I'm 50% black, 35% Italian, 5% Native American, blah, blah, blah. And I can't do that because people can tell what I am just by looking at my face, right? Uh, but every once in a while, I'll get someone who's like, oh, I think something cool is happening here. And they'll be like, hey, what are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm just black. And they get so disappointed. <laughs> They're like, why did I stop walking to talk to you? I'm gonna be late for work. And they have to be like, oh my God, I'm so dumb. I am such an idiot. Um, what I meant to say was, I'm 50% black, and I'm 50% black as hell. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, I recognize that combination. Bye. <laughs> You're scaring me. But being around my niece is cool because I'm, I'm in my 30s now, I'm 31. And being around her, I definitely know I want to have kids. I, uh, I just um, am scared to actually do it. Uh, <laughs> It's very, are there any parents here? Okay, you guys do not sound thrilled about it, cool. That's probably why you're here. Um, totes get it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wanna have kids, I just, the, oh, the unconditional love thing, that's a, that's a big part of it, right? You gotta love someone no matter what they do or who they become. And that's crazy. That's just crazy to me. Maybe I just feel that way because I'm kind of a jerk. I can own up to it. I'm not the nicest person. I'll give an example. Um, sometimes when I go to the movies, if at the, the end of the movie I hate it, I'll just stand up and yell at the screen. I'll be like, boo, you suck. You're the worst, right? 
And I had nothing to do with the making of that movie. I just get so mad that I spent two hours with it and it didn't turn out how I expected it to, you know? So I could only imagine if I were to have a kid, right? (laughs) And I like love her for 18 years and like relearn math in order to help her with her homework. (laughs) And then she just grows up to work at T-Mobile forever. Like I'm just (laughs) supposed to pretend like that's what I want for her, you know? I can't just whisper boo in her ear on the way to work. Just trash talk her just a little bit to motivate her. I can't do that. I, I don't know. I don't think that's fair. I think parents should be allowed to trash talk their own product. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think... I think it should be totally fine, right? Like, I feel like every parent should be allowed to, like, give their own, like, two-star Amazon.com review of their kids. You know? Just be like, not what I expected, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> And then an hour later, 25 people would be like, yeah, I found this review very helpful. I'm going to stay away from your garbage kid. That's not, that's not cool. You guys have been fantastic. I'm Phoebe Robinson. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Phoebe Robinson. She's got a new podcast launching soon from WNYC. It's called Two Dope Queens. Phoebe co-hosts it with The Daily Show's very funny Jessica Williams. You can find more information and her live dates at phoeberobinson.tumblr.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first interview guest this week is an acclaimed broadcast journalist. Ray Suarez was the host of NPR's Talk of the Nation. He spent 14 years with PBS's NewsHour. He currently hosts Inside Story on Al Jazeera America. Suarez, join me on the stage of NPR's Studio One in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Ray. It's great to be here, Jesse. So, Ray, you're, you're from New York City, right? Tell me. Yes, tell me in fact, I'm from Brooklyn. See, which only goes to show you if you're actually from there. Yeah. Wow. It's a diff- whole different reaction. Yeah. Wow. That was really <laughs> raw. <laughs> so, yes. Yes, I'm from Brooklyn, Jesse. <laughs> I was just, I was, we were just in Brooklyn on our tour, and um, it, it occurred to me that even in the time since the first time I stayed in Brooklyn 10 or 12 years ago, and now it had transformed almost completely, um, and I think it had been transforming for 10 or 15 years before that, um, what was it like where you lived as a kid? Well, um, I grew up in that other Brooklyn, the one that... Um, where you're allowed to let the... um, You can coast on a bicycle um, without having to pedal all the time in my Brooklyn. Uh, There may or may not be brakes on the bike, but there is no fixed gear either. (laughs) And if you've watched The Honeymooners... See, this is the problem. You you freaked me out before we came on by mentioning that your audience is all millennials and you're a millennial host and... You know, so I'm making all these boomer references and there's a clanging, landing with a thud. And I, I, grew up, I grew up in Bensonhurst. And right, right, listening to Fibber, McGee, and Molly. When, <laughs> around the Philco. You know, waiting for the bell, knowing that the milkman was coming in the morning. Yeah. Uh, um, and once... Making your own shoes. <laughs> hoping you throw off the yoke of the British. I get it. Okay. Um, in the opening credits of Saturday Night Fever, another big, another big boomer hit. Look it up. He had, we scripted this all out, and to, to raise credit, he, in the script it said, Saturday Night Fever, period, and then in parentheses, hold for applause. <laughs> I followed directions. Uh, anyway, the Bee Gees... This was a, um, an Australian-derived falsetto band. Um, is, singing, is singing Staying Alive, and John Travolta, who you will all know as um, the Emperor Xenu, uh, is... Um, you, may, you may actually be too young to know him as Sal Vega. I've got to figure this part out. 
Uh, so he's walking down the street. You remember? Have you anybody Ray. seen Saturday Night Fever? Okay. So he's walking down my block, the block where I grew up and hung out and where my friends hung out, where we went for pizza, and there's that famous opening set of licks to the Bee Gees song and his enormous... Uh, 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 right, and uh, he's coming down the street. You can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk. Right? And I saw that movie... I know that song from CPR class, in by the, the way. In the theater. Remember it for CPR class. Go ahead. I saw that movie in the theater, the marquee of which underneath he walks, which is actually read better in the original German, that sense. Uh, the, the marquee <laughs> under which he originally walks. And he walks underneath the marquee, and we're sitting in that movie theater, and the place just explodes. I grew up in that Brooklyn. There was no curated charcuterie or anything <laughs> in that neighborhood. There was salumerias and kosher butchers. When, when you were a young man or when you were a teenager, like when you were old enough to be self-aware but not that distant from your childhood, were you proud to be from Brooklyn? Yes. Uh, the, the hard part was getting people to come to things like my birthday party. Like <laughs> I, I went to NYU... And before I moved out of my apartment, the last birthday that I was in, in my parents' apartment, I asked all my buddies from the student radio station to come out to my birthday party. And they said, where, like at the end of the B train where you live? Like, like I was going to, what, hire out a hall? What, Brooklyn? Uh, no, I knew you wouldn't go that far. I've got the Brooklyn Academy of Music for the evening. It was, uh, but... People treated it like it was really, you know, like right at the edge of the water because it grew up near lower New York Bay. Somebody would write on the map, there be sea monsters. You know, like and people it, couldn't imagine coming out that far into deep Brooklyn. In this case, Brooklyn. in this case, it's sea monsters just mean Puerto Ricans. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yes, uh, that was in the subtitle when, when we made the movie of it. Uh, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ray Suarez. The acclaimed broadcast journalist joined me on stage at NPR Studio One in Washington, D.C. How did you feel about your, um, your childhood and identity as a working-class Puerto Rican-American Brooklynite when you got to NYU and, like, your degree is in African history and, you know, when you decided to become a broadcast journalist, like, did that feel like it could be an asset to you? Or did you feel like, I'm going to have to fight my way through this? It's a, it's a really long game. In the in years, it doesn't feel like an asset at all. And it's over time, when you finally grow into your own self, that you realize that it is. But in those years, you know, you're 21, 22, 23, getting your first jobs in the business, and you are treated kind of like um, a unicorn who unfortunately has to be fed. Everybody's very excited that there's a unicorn. So they walk into a newsroom, and I was the first Latino staff member in all kinds of places where I went to work over and over again. It kind of got boring. At some point you thought, couldn't I be the second somewhere? That would be kind of neat. But um, they would treat you like a slightly exotic version of themselves, even though you were saying, hey, I can do this just like you and just watch me probably better, but I wouldn't say that part out loud. Uh, one time I was was writing for a magazine, and I was with the sales staff at a national sales meeting. And the only two people in the room who were something other than guys with names like Tad. Tad I had never met Tads until I worked in this world. Tad and Bob and, you know, just regular straight-gauge, regular American guys. And the head of sales looks up as me and Neil Lipschitz walk into the room and says in front of the, all their clients and space buyers and all that, you two fellas look like you just bounced in from the Gaza Strip. And all these guys with their, whatever they drink, rye or something, go, this was pre-ironic rye. This was brown goods when old fat men drank brown goods. They all looked up and, and went like, 
And I'm thinking that, and I think, I work with you. I'm your colleague. Why are you making strangers laugh at me, your colleague? Um, one, once in an editorial meeting, we were figuring out how to cover an election, a special election that involved um, a large Puerto Rican neighborhood, and one reporter gives me a look and says, I think we better hire protection before we go down there. And at that point, you have to think, all right, what's the play here? Do you act outraged? Well, outrage may be a little too much, but saying nothing is not enough, and um, laughing at the joke maybe smooths over this moment, but it also means there's going to be a lot more moments if you laugh with the joke and just go with the flow. So you're constantly recalibrating, recalibrating, measuring, recalibrating, and it's not as easy as just it not mattering. Aside from having to explain yourself, you always have to explain why in this new world that you, colleague, and I are going to walk into together, saying what you just said is not going to be cool anymore. So you're okay with me, but as we walk out into this wider world, don't do that. <laughs> and that's not what you get into the business for. You know, I'm not HR. You know, I'm not, I don't have to give them a sensitivity session, but... Over and over and over again, you do those kinds of things until you finally become too big to hit. But it takes a long time. I'll continue my conversation with Ray Suarez after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, businesses can avoid time-consuming trips to the post office, Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. You'll even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a four-week trial and a special offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in Bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Take a listen to Microphone Check, the hip-hop podcast from NPR. Hosts Ali Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest and Franny Kelly talk to the biggest names and the best-kept secrets in hip-hop. From behind-the-scenes players to rappers, producers, and artists like Pusha T and Masta Ace. Learn what's happening in the culture now and how we got here. You can find Microphone Check at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show was taped in front of a live audience at NPR Studio One in Washington, D.C. I was joined on stage by the host of Al Jazeera America's Inside Story, journalist Ray Suarez. At what point did you start to feel like the fact that your background was different from many of your colleagues was an asset in addition to a challenge and a hassle? Um, when I was working at the NBC-owned and operated station in another name check, Chicago, um, well, I knew Chicago would get a rise. I, um, I'm from San Francisco, <laughs> and I live in Los Angeles. I recently visited Boston. <laughs> Should I just go down my tour itinerary, Ray? It's like a Chuck Berry song, but spoken. Yes. <laughs> it's a Chuck Berry song at the end, and he'd, he'd just go like, high school. <laughs> I, I realized that it was um, a hassle, but also a pleasure and a privilege. And you know, one night I was coming out of a community meeting that I covered, and I was with my crew, and we were packing up and putting the stuff back in the truck. And a guy sees me and his, and his son. He's with his son. And he comes over, he shakes my hand very solemnly. And then he looks to his son and says, this is Ray Suarez. And he makes our community proud every day. And when you have to do your homework and you have to go to school and you have to pay attention, it's because we want you to grow up to be like him. Now, that kind of stuff is fairly abstract until you're standing on the, a church lawn and some guy who you've never seen before uses you as a living mannequin uh, for his son, but in a very, very sincere way. And the son was as serious as anything, looking at me, looking at the old man, looking at me, looking at the old man. And 
Another time was when, <laughs> this is less noble, uh, <laughs> I was involved in a local YMCA that had a gang diversion program. And the head of the Y asked me to come over and talk to the fellas, and they had this really very sophisticated, very smart approach toward trying to get the young fellas in this neighborhood out of gangs. And so I did a workshop with a big bunch of guys who were trying to get out of gangs before they ended up getting sent to Stateville or, or killed. And I had to go home before going to work, and the guy says, oh, you know, we have the van. I'll drop you at your house. So I get in with a bunch of gang boys into this van, and we're riding along. And one of them, from the Latin Kings, says, oh, hey, there's your house. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what's the play there? How do you know that's my house? But I was dying to know. So I said, oh, <laughs> do all the brothers know that I live there? He says, oh, yeah. He says, why do you think your garage was never tagged? <laughs> he said, we were so proud of you that we would never tag your garage. <laughs> I was like, first of all, do Latin kings really watch Channel 5 News? Uh, okay, I thought that through. Then I said, okay, I said goodbye to all the fellas, shook everybody's hand, got out of the van, walk upstairs, there's my wife with the baby. And I said, oh, you know, I just I got to ride home with the, the guys from the Y. Do I tell that story? <laughs> Do you tell your wife, all the gang members in Logan Square know where we live, but don't worry, they're proud of me so they won't tag our garage. <laughs> I... I you're constantly weighing these things out, Jesse. It's, uh... But sincerely, like the, the first story you shared, when a father comes to you with his son and says, this is a hero for our community. If you work hard, you can be like him. And you're, you're what, like in your mid or late 20s yeah. at that point, right? That sounds genuinely terrifying to me. Like as a straight white dude, nobody ever tells me that I'm responsible for my community. No. You know what I mean? That would be heavy. <laughs> we got a lot of stuff to be responsible for. <laughs> yeah, well, frankly, I, I just I didn't know what to do with it, really, because you don't want to be some plaster saint, but you have to take seriously when somebody searches you out in a crowd on a street and says something like that to you. I mean, my normal thing is to just say, oh, you know, not, not me, no. But he was so serious that I had to take that seriously. I wasn't going to talk him out of it. No, you don't really, you don't want your son to be like me. Uh, so you then, the next time you're out in that neighborhood, you think, wow, you know, not only do I have a responsibility, a real responsibility to my family and a real responsibility to my employers who are sustaining my life and keeping me in bread and margarine, but you've got this other set of responsibilities that you're not quite as aware of all the time because you're flying like a banner on television. So people turn on the TV and they are having the world illustrated for them. All the colors of the frame filled in, cross-hatched, filled out. And you're part of that definition. To other people in that city, you're part of the reminder that the place is changing right underneath their feet. But to the other people who look at the television and see someone who they think is like them, you're like a champion. And it took me a long time to be okay with that and to realize how sincerely they meant it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ray Suarez. He's the host of Inside Story on Al Jazeera America. We were joking before uh, we came on the air about, uh, you know, like millennial stuff and public media because it's in the news lately. And I know that uh, as someone in that demographic group, I just feel like people are just yelling that word at me over and over. And if there's one demographic group in America that is uh, 
more having a word that describes them yelled at them over and over than millennials. It's probably Latinos. And I wonder if you feel, if you, there's a part of you that just feels like, as granted, as the author of a book called uh, Latinos Latino in Americans, America, yeah. Which you should write, read. All yeah. Um, if you feel like there is a certain amount of undifferentiated yelling of that word at you and then leaving you to sort of pick up the pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, being the flavor of the decade for like the cons- third consecutive decade. Uh, I, you know, people ask me, well, what do I think about it being the decade of the Hispanic? I said, this is my third one. So I've, I, know the, I know the routine. I know the steps and everything. You're, you're also like, and and by the way, I think the decade of the Hispanics was like the 70s or 80s. Like, it's been the decade of the Latinos for like 30 years now. <laughs> like, um, unless you're talking about Spaniards. But, you, but, but still, I mean, back when it was one-fifteenth the American population, they were those people over there, and if they rose or fell or tripped over their own shoelaces or fell into degradation, it didn't bother the whole. The whole would be okay, and that one-fifteenth of the population could be an inconvenience, a source of amusement, um, RBIs, a, a source of many things. <laughs> but but nothing, nothing important was riding on the success of, of Latinos in the United States. Now that it's 55 million people and one, more than one-sixth of the population, approaching one-fifth, and by, the, by 2040, it'll be approaching one-third of the population. If the Latino community continues to put up, for instance, four-year degree completion numbers like the one that currently prevails among 25 to 54-year-olds, this will be a poorer country. Because now, instead of 10% of your people not doing well, 30% of your people will not be doing well. And that is going to have real consequences for those who get Social Security checks, who want the red and green lights to change, and police to come to their house when they call them, and all that stuff, the markers of civilization, you know. Uh, If one-third of your people are not prospering... um, that's a really big problem for the country. And we're now all in this together, and people who think it doesn't have anything to do with them have a stake in the outcome that's so huge, and they don't get it. So I come along and I tell them about this stuff, and they're either uh, frightened or enthused or intrigued or something, but they're no longer beyond my reach because the numbers don't lie. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's an interesting time and in an exciting time and a scary time and all those things are necessary preconditions for people finally to start paying attention. Is it weird to you that in the national discourse and especially the national political discourse that um, Latinos are treated as an undifferentiated mass? Like I grew up in a predominantly Latino neighborhood that was mostly Mexican and Central American and I didn't know a Puerto Rican American person until I was an adult because I'm from the West Coast. How'd that Coast. go? Yeah. Well, you've been a real disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I think like, I, I think like when, people, when people talk about, say, the Cuban-American candidates for president, um, as though they have a natural, perfect affinity with, you know, whatever, Dominican-Americans or Mexican-Americans, it, it's... It's bizarre to me. And a little insulting. Yeah. Um, Because from outside, this huge, brown, undifferentiated mass, they figure, well, well, you know, come on. I guess if you're Jewish and say, well, come on, really, what's the difference between a Lutheran or a Presbyterian? Uh, This is like that, except not. Uh, You're looking from the outside and saying, come on, how much difference is there between a Mexican and a Puerto Rican, right? Well, I mean, it's like like looking at the Crusades and being like, well, what's the big deal? Some of them are Protestant, some of them are Catholic. (laughs) Actually, none of them were Protestant. Yeah, so I'm going to change that to the war of the roses. We'll work with a different (laughs) metaphor. What's a war between France and England? (laughs) Oh, boy. The Hundred Years' War. Okay, the Hundred Years' War. Thanks, Ray. It felt like it lasted forever. I know. It was, especially for you in that house in Brooklyn. 
<laughs> well, that's what set off the baby boom when yeah. it finally ended. Yeah. So anyway, we were talking about undifferentiated yes, masses. Yes, and, and you know, the, when people look at Marco Rubio and say, boy, oh boy, is he going to be gangbusters among Latino voters? And I say, let me tell you a little story. When he gave the Republican response to the State of the Union in Spanish, this was the first time this had been done, and it was quite exciting, and I watched the State of the Union, and then I turned on Marco Rubio to see the response to the State of the Union in Spanish. And he opened his mouth, and the first thing I thought was, wow, Cuban. (laughs) Because... And this is no knock on Cubans, I should be clear to explain myself, but he speaks with a very distinctive Cuban accent. But I thought, okay, maybe that's just me. So I was with a group of my amigos. (laughs) And I said, hey, did you watch that Marco Rubio thing? And they said, yeah, wow. Cuban. (laughs) And here's where it gets complicated. Both Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are pretty ambivalent about a path to citizenship, even a path to legalization for the millions of people who are here undocumented, even long-term undocumented. And their national... Companeros. If they land on American soil by any means, they can just say, I'm Cuban, I'm here, I'm in. And the Border Patrol basically says, yes, you are. You are in, because wet foot, dry foot, under the Cuban Adjustment Act, um, says basically, if you get here, you're in. And you are a legal resident and then a permanent resident or eligible for permanent residency after one year. It's a relic of the Cold War, but it's something, believe me, that every Mexican who has any member of their family who's undocumented knows very well. So most of the well-known Puerto Rican politicians are in very high sympathy. I say most because there's a, a member from Idaho named Raul Labrador who is a little waffly on it, but the other people, Nidia Velasquez, Jose Serrano, Luis Gutierrez, um, they totally want to legalize all those people around the country who are here without papers, eventually have them be citizens and voters in addition to being taxpayers and parents of citizens. So they're very, very aware that these people are in our corner and these people very much are not. And the idea that Marco Rubio who is a young guy who says the same stuff that old guys does, is going to go to barrios around the country and because he speaks Spanish, just bowl them over. All he's going to say in Spanish is, well, no, I I actually don't want to help your parents get papers with a Cuban accent. I think that a lot of times the challenges, the tough parts in people's lives and professional lives often have a flip side, like there is a sort of superpower element. And I wonder if there have been times in your career when you could do something because you were Puerto Rican-American that your colleagues who weren't couldn't, and you were like, all right, score one for us. (laughs) Um, uh, Sometimes that happens, but for all the wrong reasons. You know, you are permanently foreign in a really weird way. And I talk about this in the book, which, of course, you all will read. Um, There is a kind of permanent foreignness, a permanent exoticism that no matter how fully assimilated and acculturated you are, you're tagged with whether you want it or not. And I I look on that with, uh, with really mixed emotions because it allows you to slide in some places and not in others and yeah I mean there have been times where uh, covering certain races interviewing certain public officials uh, those kinds of things uh, you're able to trade on that 
But hell, people trade on the other stuff that's not that all the time. Uh, so if I finally get a little grease at the, uh, at the end of the story for this, I don't really feel guilty about it. But the, uh, the funny entree is, um, is that I haven't been on NPR for 15 years and people still talk to me about being on Talk of the Nation. That <laughs> happens more often than talking about being Puerto Rican. <laughs> I, I, saw on, I saw on Twitter that somebody uh, wanted to talk to you about um, uh, some stuff that happened to you on uh, Talk of the Nation, only it was stuff that happened to Juan Williams on yeah. Talk of the Nation. <laughs> well, that's, that's sort of the weird underside of all of this. There is a, uh, a wonderful journalist in Chicago named Phil Ponce, and he works for the CBS-owned and operated station, or did then, uh, when we were both running partners in Chicago, and um, I was walking along a street in Washington, and somebody was yelling, and then I heard the yelling coming closer, and somebody was yelling, Phil, 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 well, as my name is not Phil, I kept on walking, (laughs) and finally, two big hands grabbed me by the shoulders, whipped me around, it's a member of the Illinois congressional delegation, who's saying, Phil, I was calling you. I was calling you down the whole block, and you didn't turn around. And I thought, all right, Congressman, do I say, well, you know, I'm not the short Mexican guy. <laughs> I'm that other guy. <laughs> uh, and or I thought, well, I don't see him that often. I don't want to embarrass him. He's having a what he thinks of as a heartwarming uh, <laughs> personal moment. So I'll just I'll just swing with it. And give his press guy my card. <laughs> I thought, that way I don't have to embarrass him to his face, but I'll let it be known that I'm not Phil Ponce, but in the nicest possible way. And I thought, you know, come on, Congressman. You of all people should know we're not all the same person. <laughs> but what people say to me, oh, Juan Williams, man, I... I dug you on the radio. I dig you on television. What are you supposed to do with that? And Juan, and Juan Williams, I, you know, I resemble Juan Williams. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think you Helen and Mirren I... and Janet Lopez are both women, <laughs> uh, but but no one says they look like each other because they're both women. I mean, I Juan it's... Williams, nobody. But it's that Juan thing. <laughs> One hell of a guy. So he, they, people say to me, hey, Juan Williams. And I think, come on, man. Come on. Ray Suarez, not Juan Williams. Ray Suarez. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people think your first name is Jesus. <laughs> now, that, now, that, now that California's doing what it's doing. Well, um, I got to tell you, Ray, I no disrespect intended to Juan Williams <laughs> or Phil Ponce, but I'm so grateful you took the time to be here, and you're absolutely one of my journalistic heroes. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Ray Suarez, ladies and gentlemen. Ray Suarez. He's the author of several books, including Latino Americans, The 500-Year Legacy That Shaped a Nation, and The Holy Vote, The Politics of Faith in America. He's also the host of the news show Inside Story on Al Jazeera America. The network's going off the air at the end of April, but there are two months of shows before then. Be sure to watch them. He's also fielding offers now for his next move. Ray, I have basically no money to offer you, but if you want to come work here at MaximumFun.org, yeah, like we got a chair for you and everything. Let's do this. After a break, I'll talk to musician Dan Deacon about putting the audience at the center of his live shows and touring with Miley Cyrus. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bulletproof Coffee, working to turn your morning coffee into a favorite breakfast treat. You don't need a fancy coffee maker, just a unique recipe. Imagine a cross between a latte and a breakfast smoothie designed to keep you full and energized for hours. Visit Bulletproof.com and you'll get $10 off your first order when you enter the coupon code NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Take a listen to Microphone Check, the hip-hop podcast from NPR. Hosts Alicia Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest and Franny Kelly talk to the biggest names and the best-kept secrets in hip-hop. From behind-the-scenes players to rappers, producers, and artists like Pusha T and Masta Ace. Learn what's happening in the culture now and how we got here. 
You can find Microphone Check at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show was recorded in front of a live audience at NPR Studio One in Washington, D.C. My next guest is a Baltimore-based musician whom I've known now for the better part of a decade. He's an electronic musician and composer who makes really exciting music and basically puts on the best dance party you've ever been a part of every time he has a gig. This is Dan Deacon. So, Dan, we were backstage uh, hanging out and chatting, and it literally took every power of uh, self-control that I was able to muster Mm. to not ask you how it's going on tour opening for Miley Cyrus. Um, it's going all right. It's going all right. <laughs> okay, let's. Well, I want to go. We'll, we'll get into it in a second. But how did you? I mean, you are well known in the worlds of indie rock and electronic music. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Um, and you certainly. If we were talking about you and Miley Cyrus sharing a festival bill or something like that, it wouldn't be surprising, but... That, that would still be pretty weird, to be okay. honest. <laughs> yeah. So wh- how did you even end up on tour with Miley Cyrus? Well, I guess uh, Miley and Wayne from the Flaming Lips have become like a... Kind of like when, like, a, I don't know, like, you know, when, like, sometimes, like, Batman and there'd be, like, a Marvel-DC crossover. This is kind of like, like <laughs> Batman and, like, the Smurfs crossover or something. <laughs> and... um I don't know which is which, but um, <clears throat> anyway, some, I was at the airport one morning, and I get a lot of texts from Wayne that are just like an animated GIF of like an eyeball, like, <laughs> and, and like that. So t- he's t- not throwing any curveballs, in other words. No, no, it's all. <laughs> and then when, like, you, so when you give Wayne Coyne your, uh, your cell phone number, you're yeah. getting back exactly what you expected. It's like a <laughs> private, private Tumblr, pretty much, just like. <laughs> And um, every once in a while, he'll be like, hey, what are you doing for this stretch of months? And it's like, whatever you want. And then, you know, six weeks later, it'll just be like a hand with like feet for fingers running down the street. So uh, one day I got a text and it was like, what are you doing on this stretch of dates? And I was like, "Uh, nothing. Uh, That's right around Thanksgiving. I have nothing to do. And he's like, do you want to? Uh, go on tour with Cyrus. And my first thought was like, Cyrus, are they like a alt-country rock band? Cyrus, Cyrus. And then I started realizing, oh, he means Miley Cyrus. That, and then so I wrote, sure, sure. <laughs> I'd love to. Um, thinking that it was, ne- of course, never going to happen. And then somehow it did. And then I try to keep pretty low expectations about everything in my life because my life is pretty insane i have no idea how like you know anything has ever happened to me at all so um uh but these shows are particularly bizarre like i didn't you know they sold out in like one minute the whole tour and we first shows in chicago chicago a couple of nights ago (laughs) and uh and um (laughs) uh there were people like intense, like lined up for blocks and blocks and blocks, even though they already had tickets, just to get in the venue first. So I, I'm up there on stage, and everyone, the way I describe it is that they're very polite. Everyone's very polite. But, uh, I mean, you could be up there, like, you know, delivering, like, miracle babies, and <laughs> they would just be like, this is fine, but when is Cyrus coming out? What's, where is Miley? But I think as a performer, it's sort of important to like perform in like uh, in maybe the most stressful and horrific environment you could possibly imagine yourself in, because it forces you to like go a little bit farther. Do you know what I mean? Have you learned? Have you learned any? What do they, does she have? Like a Belieber's? Is, is that a th- Smilers? They're Smilers. Got it. So what? Wh- but I really like calling them Juggalos. It's really fun. <laughs> uh, um, uh, anyway, 
have you have you learned anything about the cult? Because this these shows, as you mentioned, sold out in like a minute because she's playing. You know, instead of playing the maybe arenas that mm-hmm. she could play as a pop star. Um, experimental Miley Cyrus is playing, uh, you know, big theaters or something like that. Yeah, like right? more like four or five thousand capacity venues. Yeah, so these are the people who are really there for Miley Cyrus. These are true smilers. Definitely, it'd be like if like Hugh, Hugh Jackman went on tour and like he was playing like uh, you know rooms this size and like you know you could have like Led Zeppelin set up beforehand, but they'd be like, "Can we just get Van Helsing out here? What's going on?" <laughs> And like, just to be clear for folks who are listening on the radio, when he says rooms this size, I mean, this is like what about six or eight thousand? Yeah. <laughs> right. So Sorry, it's I not like spe- a whole Staples Center type thing. Mm-hmm. It's like a cow palace. Okay. Uh, minor league hockey type situation. And no, no disrespect to Hugh Jackman for playing. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he could pack out like six fair, nights like, at the forum. If, he could probably sell even more tickets if people knew what his act was. <laughs> <laughs> Is he just going to go out and be Wolverine? Uh, I would kind of love like a 90 minute just free form improv show <laughs> where like, he, like you know, how Holbrook evening with Mark Twain only it's an evening with Wolverine. I kind of I'm kind of more thinking like Ornette Coleman. He's got like you know. A little like plastic saxophone off to the side. He might not touch it the whole night, but like <laughs> Hugh Jackman's got like you know an inflatable cactus next to like just like a you know a, a well trained dog. Like I don't know what's gonna happen. That and that truly was when I became Wolverine. <laughs> snicked, snicked <laughs> is the sound that Wolverine makes. Um, so have you learned? Have you learned anything about the world of Miley Cyrus and her people from being on this tour? Because I mean, I, I don't know how closely you followed that world before. Uh, very, very closely. No, right. um, uh, I don't know. I was surprised at how like down to earth everyone was. Like I've done a bunch of like larger tours where like it's like the closest thing to being like. You're basically a prisoner, but you're the prince's friend, and we would kill you if you were to die immediately. <laughs> so, um, but everyone here is real nice to us and our guests, and that was like, you know, the music system is kind of like a, I don't know, like whenever I'm at, at like a music festival, I'm like, this is like the closest thing to like children of men that like exists in modern society <laughs> within the United States. And, like, the music system, I think, is another, like, from the fans and the hierarchy, very much like a, you know, a very visual cast system. And this this tour doesn't seem to have much of that. Everyone is, like, sharing the same catering, which is, again, as, as normal as that sounds for, like, are you telling me, like, Miley Cyrus and Wayne Coyne eat the same sandwiches as, like, Al Schatz, your front of house uh, engineer? Anyway, so, um, but things like that are... Anomalous. And I like, felt that way when I shared when I ate the same kind of sandwich as Ray Suarez earlier on. I, I was like, oh, I was, was going to gram that, but uh. <laughs> they're, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my conversation with Dan Deacon, which was recorded live on stage at NPR Studio One in Washington, D.C. Deacon's newest album is called Gliss Riffer. What for you, what did you have a relationship with as a kid that was closest to the relationship that these 18-year-olds that love Miley Cyrus have with Miley Cyrus and her music? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a dark question to ask. Um, well, the first band that I really liked that like my parents didn't like, and my parents were big uh, music fans and encouraged me to listen to music, and... And I, I, you know, full credit to my parents. They didn't like this band, and that's kind of why I liked them. But and that was uh, Aerosmith. Um, <laughs> and I remember my dad like getting tickets to the Aerosmith concert at a uh, uh, Jones Beach Amphitheater on Long Island, where I grew up. And uh, I could tell my dad was just like, I hate everything about this band. <laughs> um, but I was, I don't know why I was into Aerosmith. It's not like I was like. I didn't, I, I, you know, at the time I was like, John Candy was my hero for like obvious reasons you can't really tell on radio, but like, uh, um, it's because you're both Canadian. Yeah, we're both Canadian. Um, and uh, the lyrics didn't make any sense to me. I don't know. I didn't play guitar. I just sort of liked Aerosmith, if that makes any sense. 
But then that rapidly shifted to They Might Be Giants, and I became like massively obsessed with They Might Be Giants. A couple of members of They Might Be Giants in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the thing that you least, that you least expected about uh, this tour? Like when you went on it, what, what surprised you the most? I guess the, the, the camping out. Like, you know, in Detroit, it was like a terrible like, snowstorm for like a couple of days. And 4,000 people were, in my mind, needlessly out there. Because, you know, the doors, you know, they tell you right on the ticket, like, doors are at six. <laughs> no need to show up any earlier. Um, and then once they're inside, they're, they're inside and there's no, there's no movement. And so much of my performance is based upon movement and, like, shifting the performance from the stage to the audience. But, again, I feel like I'm more at, like, a an unveiling of like a new kind of rare earth or something. Do you know what I mean? Like I, it, I don't feel like I'm at, it's like, a, it's like I'm at actually a cartoon. Like if someone was like <laughs> legit Daffy Duck is here, like, <laughs> not a drawing, like <laughs> Daffy Duck, he's here. It's hor It's horrifying. <laughs> he's, he's pulling pranks. He's like old Daffy Duck too, so he's not even like just like cantankerous and like you know angry that he's number two. He is like putting black holes everywhere, and we're doomed. <laughs> I don't know how I started talking about that. I'm sorry. Um, I once heard you yell uh, while on stage. I, I think at, at I once heard you yell as a. <laughs> I once heard you yell. That's a that's a question that journalists reserve for Dan Deacon <laughs> and presidential candidate Donald Trump. At, at one of your many I screaming sessions. By the way, this is what I'm about to say is something that probably Donald Trump has yelled at some point. But uh, I once heard you yell while performing. Uh, uh, I want to see everyone dancing like a bunch of grown up Bart Simpsons. <laughs> I do. I want to see that all the time. <laughs> you have a real, you have a really deep commitment to the kind of immersive uh, party ritual, wild experience that is that's in this, in a way kind of uncommon in some of the circles that you run in. Like if you're on the Pitchfork Festival or something like that. Uh, most of the bands aren't trying to just burn the place down with party dance vibes and sweat. I haven't been in a couple of years, but yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. Um, so why do you what? Why do you believe in that so strongly? Because you make, in a way, art music, and you could just say this is something to sit back and enjoy and um, and appreciate intellectually. Well, I mean, I think music is the most social of all the the arts. And I feel like I sit in this, like, you know, the center of the Venn diagram of, like, DJ culture and band culture. And, you know, my background was in studying experimental music. And I remember the first time I heard the John Cage, you know, phrase that all music is theater. And this is right when I was starting to get into computer music. And I was like, there is nothing theatrical about me being on my laptop going like this. Like, why is someone going to watch this? Especially standing in a warehouse listening to it through like a blown bass amp there's nothing about this that i would want to do why would i subject strangers and friends as like to do this so i started thinking about what music was and why i was doing it and what i like to do and i liked to dance and i like to have a good time and and then i started thinking like how the audience is what makes a show the audience is the show if you have a great audience the show's great no matter what. The performers can be subpar, but if the audience is incredible, the show is incredible, and vice versa. If you, you can have an amazing show, and if the audience is lackluster, the whole show sort of has that kind of vibe, if that makes any sense. Plus, I was a solo performer, touring around to like places I'd never been, and I kept thinking, like, I'm playing the same songs every night, and it's driving me crazy. What are the things that are different night to night? And one is the venue, and two is the audience. And how can you incorporate these things that I'm not going to have any idea what they're going to be like until I get there? Like, So you'd show up, and you'd be like, all right, well, there's four exits. How quickly can we get everyone to run outside the venue and pick a new entrance to come back in? <laughs> um and what are what are 
the things you can get a group of, you know, a dozen to 10,000 people to collectively instantly do with no rehearsal and very little instruction, but still just enough so that it has structure. And then I started thinking about how music audiences are, you know, think of themselves not the same way that a performer does. Like when you're on stage, the audience is one group. But like here, everyone sitting in this chair is an individual. There's not like a hive mind mentality happening within this room. But with sports and religion, it is like we believe this or we went to the game and we need a new pitcher and we won the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, no one says like we went to Tom Petty and our guitar tone was great. (laughs) Um, And I just kept thinking about how weird that was and how you could what. I could do as a performer to have that mental shift from an audience going from an I to a we to a they to a them. And that's choice. When you add the element of choice to a performance, immediately off the bat, even the choice to choose to participate, you're, that you're choosing to not. You know what I mean? And that puts you in a mindset of everyone else becomes them. Do you know what I mean? And the people who are doing it, it's us. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And I thought that just made it easier and if you look back at like how dance music started it was like largely people just playing records and having a party in like community centers and stuff like that and it wasn't about like watching the person doing it it was about watching the people that were around you while rock music was more of this like please just i'm gonna look down at the ground but please just stare at me the entire time do you know what i mean (laughs) so and that just didn't make any sense to me so um i liked when people were dancing i liked I remember the first time I did a show where, like, the power went out and I needed to, like, scramble to, like, figure out how to not uh, lose the crowd was the first time I made a circle, like, a clearing in the audience. And then I noticed, like, for the first time that night, the entire room wasn't just staring towards the direction of the stage. Even though there was no stage, everyone was just, like, looking basically at a wall where they knew possibly somewhere performers were down underneath that. But now everyone was looking in a different direction, and the fo- whole focus of the room changed, and the other people in the room became the performers, and it just, I don't know, really resonated with me, and I became obsessed with it, and that's why I'm telling you right now. So I, I've seen you rock a podcast party as a performer and a DJ. I saw you blow up a dance floor by dropping the electronic needle on the song Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid once. <laughs> it's... A, it's Always a party starter. I believe, I believe, I sincerely believe that uh, you can do anything. Uh, do, do you think you're ready to rock a crowd at NPR headquarters? Yeah, let's give it a try. Dan Deacon, ladies and gentlemen. This song's called When I Was Done Dying.
Dan Deacon. His latest record is called Gliss Riffer. It's available now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Borello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Thanks to everyone at NPR who helped us with the show. Brian Jarbo, Neil Tevault, Andy Huther, Justin Wynn, Carrie Thompson, Izzy Smith, all of our friends at NPR. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. All of our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows or segments, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a fun discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the team discuss mortality in popular culture. If that sounds bleak, don't worry too much. They are a smart, funny bunch, and I promise you will still have a good time. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.